should have changed that title for you guys to be like from the lab to your dorm room or something, right? That would have been more relevant, I guess. But uh, anyway, I'm here today to talk to you about my work and my research as uh, an astrophysicist or an astronomer. But, you know, what does that word even mean? What do astrophysicists actually do? It's one of those words that kind of gets like bandied around to just mean like smart person, like especially if like Hollywood movies or anything to go by. So like Natalie Portman in Thor plays an astrophysicist. And unfortunately, while I would love for Chris Hemsworth to fall through my ceiling every day whilst I'm at work, he doesn't. Uh, and I don't get to research wormholes with alien Nordic superhero gods. But anyway, I also don't do this. So if you came here with the hope that I would tell you because you were born in March and your birthday's coming up, then you're all going to like have a windfall of money. You're also in the wrong place because that's definitely not what I do. Uh, and I think the reason we have this problem is because nobody really knows what we do as physicists. Now, I hope you're all here because you generally like physics, and you might have this problem too, right? That, you know, society thinks we're all Einsteins with crazy hair standing at a blackboard looking a bit confused. My mum is convinced that, like, if Armageddon ever happened, like, I would be able to save the world from impending asteroid strikes. I, I don't do that either. My friends think the Big Bang Theory when they picture astrophysicists, but I'd like to think that I have more social skills than they do. Um, I think that I just stare through telescopes all day, which, if you're doing it in the day, is probably a good idea as an astronomer, maybe all night. Um, but I also don't do that. I generally tend to sit at my desk and look at data and get very surprised by the things that it's trying to tell me about the universe. So, what I actually do is study galaxies hence the title of this talk, right? But before we get to the zoo part of Galaxy Zoo, we should probably all get to speed with what actually is a galaxy and what are these things that I'm actually studying, okay? So there's two galaxies behind me right now, okay? They're both galaxies. A galaxy is essentially, you can think of it as like an island of stars. They're like the cities of the universe. And galaxies contain from anywhere from a million to a billion to hundreds of billions of stars. And they come in two main shapes. So sometimes we see them as these beautiful spiral structures, like in the top left there. Beautiful spiral things, the kind of like images that you can't help but just like stare at in wonder, right? And we think that the Milky Way galaxy, which is our galaxy, the sun being one star of over hundreds of billions of stars, is a spiral galaxy as well. And it's this beautiful shape, which is quite difficult to figure out if you're in the middle of it and you can't sort of you know, zoom out to see what is the shape is. But then you've got galaxies that look like the bottom right there, that are just kind of boring blobs of galaxies, right? They're big spheres of stars that have all collected together. And whilst these ones, all the stars, are really nicely rotating, like the solar system does with the planets that go around the sun, all the stars are rotating nicely, ordered rotating. These ones, we think the stars, they look sort of more like a beehive. They're really chaotic. They're also orbiting the center. There's no pattern or rhyme or reason to it. They're just flying around the galaxy. And then you end up with these blobish shapes. Now, the, the scientific term is elliptical, but I prefer the word blob just because it's fun to say. So I'm going to refer to them as blobs for the rest of this talk. And you can see maybe behind me that there's a really main difference that you've probably been able to spot out, right? Is that the blobs are that sort of weird yellowish color. And the spiral galaxy is this beautiful blue color. And we think that that, is, that difference is because of the stars that are in those galaxies. So we think that the spiral galaxy contains lots of young, hot, big stars. 
make it blue. And the big blob galaxy contains a lot of old, much smaller, cooler stars that are red. So what does that ever mean? Did she just say blue equals hot and red equals cold? Because cats have been telling us entirely different things for our entire lives, right? But think about like a Bunsen burner flame or the flame on a hob when you cook, right? That's a blue flame. And it's much hotter than a candle flame, which burns sort of reddish yellow in color. And it's much, much cooler. So these galaxies, the blobs, are kind of like the dying embers of the fire. There's the spiral galaxies, the ones that are like full of life. And you can see maybe that the spiral galaxy in the middle is maybe a mini version of this thing. So maybe the middle of the galaxy is kind of the where the sort of dying embers of the fire start, where it starts to shut down its starter motion at first and no longer forms these big, bright, hot stars anymore. The thing is, though, about these galaxies, I've told you all this as if it's a given, as if we've always known it. But we haven't always known it. Because these galaxies, so this one in the top left here is the Andromeda Galaxy. You may have heard of the Andromeda Galaxy, one of the closest galaxies to us in the Milky Way. You can see it in the night sky tonight if you went out and found it, because it's clear. No idea if it's raining or not. And the really cool thing is that we used to think that they were nebula. So nebula was like a catch-all term for anything that wasn't a star in our sky. Anything that was like fuzzy and sort of gas looking and, and wasn't like a nice point like a star. And we used to think that they were part of our own galaxy, the Milky Way, that they were, say, tens of thousands of light years away. And so Edwin Hubble in the 1920s had come along to measure how distant these things were. And he actually said, actually, these are millions of light years away, maybe even billions of light years away. And actually, they're galaxies in their own right just like the Milky Way of hundreds of billions of years. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have lived through that time, right? Where one day you think the universe is so big that it's just a hundred billion stars in your backyard of the Milky Way, and that's it. That's it, that's all the universe is. And then all of a sudden, overnight, it, it almost grows exponentially in the sort of human knowledge, sort of sphere and consciousness. Like, that would have been incredible to live through, I think. To just be like, oh, no, it's exponentially bigger than anybody ever thought. I think is really cool. And once Hubble figured out that these were galaxies and not nebula, he wanted to know, why are they these different shapes? Why are some blobs and why are some spiral shapes? Because what is it about the universe that means that they should end up that way? So what Hubble did was what all good scientists do, right? He came up with a way to classify them, right? So everyone knows, like, biologists have their classification system, right? They have your mammals and your birds and your reptiles and all that kind of stuff. So this is like the animal kingdom of the galaxy world, right? It's called the Hubble tuning fork, because for those of you who do music, you know, it's like a tuning fork that you ring to tune your instrument. And he said, let's put all the blobbish things over this side, and we'll get steadily less blobbish, and then we'll get the spiral galaxies. And we'll go from very tightly round things to very loosely round things. And on the bottom, we did the same, but we had a special type of uh, spiral there. We have something that's called a barred spiral galaxy. Instead of the spiral arms coming out of the middle, it comes out of a long, thin structure that runs through the middle, and they come out of the end. This is the thing we call a bar. Makes a lot of fun jokes about galaxy bars. And then we've got this extra category here, who, for those at the front of you, might be able to see that that kind of looks like a penguin looking after an egg. So it's just our miscellaneous category that we put things that we have no idea what else to put them in. 
And so Hubble was basically trying to observe every galaxy in the universe that he could and put them on this slider to classify them. And the idea was that if he could observe them all, he could better understand where they form in the universe. Ended up finding out that, say, the blob galaxies are actually surrounded by other galaxies, whereas the spiral galaxies tend to be left alone by themselves. And so he thought that blob galaxies are formed from merging two galaxies together, destroying that spiral shape, because there's just so many of them near next to each other. Pretty cool. But he couldn't do that unless he classified them all. Now, classifying all the galaxies was a lot easier back then because, well, you're observing stuff like this. Right? This is a sketch of a galaxy called the Whirlpool Galaxy that was done in 1851. This is back when we still thought these were nebulae and people weren't quite sure what they were and didn't have any way of sort of recording it in terms of like a digital photograph like we all have now in our pockets or the cellular phones, right? And so they do sketches. And you can see, well, there's the center and there's a spiral structure. But then there's this fuzzy blob thing here that might have just been where the guy who's Lord Ross in Northern Ireland did that. Maybe at that point, he just sort of smudged his sketch with his elbow. Could be a real thing. Could just be some weird thing that's ended up that way over time. People build sketches doing pieces of paper or whatever. But actually, if you now consider the best observation we have of this galaxy, it's taken with a telescope called the Hubble Space Telescope. Have you all heard of the Hubble Space Telescope? It's a famous telescope taking some really beautiful images over the years. And so now we're in a regime where we get so much more detail in this, because we're just lucky if I overlay this and see like the detail that you can see instead. You can now see that fuzzy blob is actually a little blob galaxy in its own right. You can now see individual regions of star formation along the spiral arm. You can see these dark dust lanes where there's so much dust blocking out the light that you can't see anything else. And so because we've got telescopes that can give us this much detail, yeah, we've got loads of detail, we can classify them, we can understand them so much better. But now there's a lot more galaxies to look at. We've actually set up things called surveys, so survey telescopes that literally night after night after night will just scan the sky. And at every single point in the sky they get to, they'll take a little postage stamp size cutout of the sky, observe that for a little while, and then move on. And observe that one for a little while, and then move on again end up sort of like mosaicing up the sky to observe it. And they'll come back to it night after night after night and add up all the images of the same part of the sky that they've taken to collect more and more light to see further and more distant and fainter things. And the images, the postage stamp images they take are about an arc minute by an arc minute across, which is probably a unit you're like, you just made that up. <laughs> but it's not, I promise. It's a very small unit. If you take a degree, as in like 360 degrees in a circle, Take one degree and split it into 60. You've got an arc minute, right? So it's a very, very small amount. And in terms of the scale of the sky, in terms of full moon, the full moon's only 30 arc minutes across. You know in that film, Dear John, where she like blocks out the moon with her thumb? You can block out the moon with your thumb. That's 30 arc minutes in the sky. Imagine going all the way around the sky with a thumb that's one arc minute across. It was a long time. You probably notice that this telescope here that's doing these observations, this is the VLT in Chile, or the Very Large Telescope. Not very inventive with names in astronomy. It's being superseded by the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope. <laughs> and uh, there's even proposals now in for the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope as well. But you can see maybe one thing that you weren't expecting is this giant laser disc coming out the top of it. And the laser is there to essentially counteract the effect of our atmosphere. 
You know what the laser should look like, which is your nice point in the sky. For all the turbulence in the atmosphere that you feel when you go on a plane that shakes up the air, shakes up the light that you're seeing from the distant galaxy. And also it can mean that you're not looking in the same place as you thought you were the previous night. So when you add the images together, they'll be slightly off. So the laser is there to make sure you're pointing in the exact same place you were last night. And it enables you to be accurate to an arc second. So we can take an arc minute and split it into 60 again. You get an arc second. So that's how accurate these telescopes need to be. Now you're probably thinking, okay, that sounds great. However, there are some patches of the sky that are dark. So surely we don't need to observe all of the sky. There's just areas we can skip over. We kind of had that idea sort of maybe 20, 30 years ago when we started doing these survey experiments. We thought well, we better test that before we decide to do that. So they took the best telescope they had. So it's the Hubble Space Telescope, space. And they said, let's stare it at the darkest patch of sky that we know for six months straight. And just let it collect as much light as possible so we can see the furthest and the faintest thing in case there's anything there. The darkest patch of sky we know is a constellation called Fornax, which is a very funny word, and you probably will not have heard of it because it's in the southern hemisphere. So it's not like I went Orion and you all went, oh yeah, Orion, it's southern hemisphere. Probably never see that. And it's a very dark patch of sky. And the patch they stared at was about 5% of the size of a full moon. It's about two arc minutes by two arc minutes across. It's a very, very small patch of sky. And they didn't know what to expect. Could have been nothing. It could have been six months of time wasted. But this is what they found in the tiny patch of sky. I tell you there are four stars in that image. One is here. So you can pick them out because they sort of are so bright that the, it bleeds into the other pixels in that nice sort of like the crosshair kind of way. So that's a star. There's one there. Uh, there's one up at the top there. That could be just about me. And there's another one. Can you spot it before I do? Because I've forgotten where it is. Down the bottom, there it is. Yeah, it's kind of edge. Yeah, so there's four stars. They're all stars in our own Milky Way galaxy, right in the foreground that we're sort of looking past. Every other point of light in that image is a galaxy of over 100 billion stars. Yeah. So everything from this beautiful spiral, and beautiful spiral in this case in here, to this tiny pixel that you probably can't see at the back. Right? That tiny pixel is a galaxy of 100 billion stars incredibly far away from us in the very early universe. At last count, there are 5,000 galaxies in that image. And that's in the darkest, tiniest patch of sky. So can you imagine taking little postage stamps across the whole sky and there being like 5,000 galaxies in each part of the sky. You can imagine when you start to be like, okay, how many galaxies are there in the universe? You get asked that question. How many stars are there in the universe? It's why you end up getting in the billions and trillions of billions, you know, numbers that like Brian Cox likes to say, like those big numbers, right? You get there very, very quickly when you try and estimate. And this is why, you know, people say astronomy is such a big subject because there is so much to look at and so much to know out there. Which is great, but it really makes this job of classifying all the galaxies a little bit difficult. Because you end up with so many, there's 5,000 in this tiny patch. 
So if you're trying to survey the whole sky, it's a lot. And this was sort of where astronomy in this field was up to about 13 years ago or so, so back in 2007, which actually in 2007 I was sort of in lower six, so where a lot of you guys are now. So 13 years ago. I had images like this. So they don't look as cool as the Hubble Space Telescope images. They're not as clear because they're taken from the ground and the atmosphere is still in the way. So they're a little bit fuzzy. But there we go. So they had images like this. They had a million galaxies of images like this, right? But they'd taken with one of these survey telescopes in space. And people were like, a million galaxies, that's amazing. We can finally sort of put all those galaxies on that tuning fork diagram, classify them all, understand, you know, probability. Prob Ballistically and statistically, like what's going on in the universe? And it got very exciting. Problem was, literally not enough astronomers in the world to look at a million images. There's just too many pictures to look at. And so they actually sat on a computer hard drive for years with no one actually looking at them and no one actually doing anything. And so an Oxford professor around 2007 decided enough is enough. This is serious. We need to actually look at all of these galaxies. And he thought, who am I going to get to look at all of these galaxies? I know my PhD student, Kevin. And he turned to Kevin and said, Kevin, here's an images of a million galaxies in the universe. Can you classify them? And obviously Kevin was like, okay. Went off to make himself a cup of tea. <laughs> Thought he'd need it. And came back to classify it. Kevin got through 50,000 galaxies in a week before he was begging his supervisor to never, ever ever make him look at another picture of space again. And so his supervisor felt bad at this point, his professor. And so he actually took him out for a pint at the local pub in Oxford. He went to the Royal Oak, if anybody knows it. And they had a chat and they had a sat sit down and said, this can't go on. I can't keep doing 50,000 galaxies a week for the next six months till they're all classified. Because first of all, one person doing it is a really bad idea. Because if Kevin hadn't had his morning cup of tea or his morning cup of coffee, he'd probably be making loads of mistakes. You know, be there like spiral blob, spiral blob. Oh, no, that was a blob, not a spiral. Never mind, I'll just carry on. He's making a lot of mistakes, first of all. It's all subjective as well, so what he could see, might, somebody else might see something different. It could be interpreted in different ways. So it wasn't good that one person was looking at it. So he sat there thinking, well, we need at least maybe like 10, 20 people to look at each image. Can we get 10, 20 PhD students and subject them for six months to look into this torture? <laughs> That's not fun for someone to do that much work by themselves. And they thought, well, who, who could we get to do this? And they thought, well, actually, you know who really likes looking at pictures of space? Is like the public and people like you like, like looking at pictures of space. And if we could reach enough people so that maybe they each did like 10 classifications, then maybe we'd be able to classify all a million, maybe like 10 or 20 people each. And so the idea of Galaxy Zoo was born, literally a zoo of galaxies, a website that you could go on, see an image of a galaxy that's been sat on a computer hard drive for years that no one in humanity has ever laid eyes on and classify it, its shape for science. It's pretty cool. At least they thought so anyway. But they thought, mm, you know, maybe if we keep doing stuff like this at schools and maybe go on the radio, at local radio, we can convince a couple of people to maybe help out. And slowly but surely, after maybe, say, 10, 15 years, we'll, we'll be getting there. 
nearing completion, nearing having all of them crossed off. In the first 24 hours of the project being launched, the server crashed that was hosting the website because so many people tried to log on at once to help track it down. The project scientist was invited onto Radio 4 the next day, and again the server crashed. Turns out Radio 4 audiences love space, and they really want to help out with science. Who knew? And actually, in six months, the whole project was completed with each galaxy classified four peak times. So 40 million clicks in this project in six months. Which sounds like a lot, but if you compare it to like the human effort hours to do that, compared to like human effort hours playing like Candy Crush or Angry Birds, it pales into insignificance. But it's incredibly cool. And if you're thinking, oh, that sounds like something I would have liked to have done, that's really annoying that that got done already back in like 2008. Well, astronomers never stop taking pictures of the sky. It's kind of our job. So we always do it, and we end up with more data. So the project is still going with a different data set, with a different telescope, looking at further and further distances to compare like, what we see now and what's further away. And so the website, what it asks you to do is it shows you a picture like this, and then it breaks it down into sort of little tasks. So it first of all asks you this question. Is it a blob, or is it a disk and you're like a star? Because you're including light by mistake. And it says, if it is a spiral, is it, it's a disk, then how tightly wound are the spiral arms? If it does have spiral arms, how many of them are there? And then it asks you a question at the end where it's like, is there anything weird about it? Is it merging? Does it have a ring around it? Something like that. And so, because it breaks it down, it, it means the task, it means it's just showing you this picture and sort of assuming you're a professional astronomer and can tell me straight away that that's a two-armed, loosely wound spiral with nothing odd about it, it, it breaks it down so that, you know, even someone like a, an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old can do this, right? Humans are very good at, like, shapes. It, it's kind of something they start as early on in nursery, isn't it? Like, the square thing goes in the square hole and the triangle thing goes in the triangle hole. Like, we're good at this. And so we find that, like, anybody do, can do this. And we have open days in the physics department in Oxford. We've got, like, three-year-olds. They're like, yeah, can do it. We love it. So it's a nice, simple task that it gets you to do. And I hope that some of you are inspired maybe to, to have a go yourselves and contribute, because every single click counts. You don't have to worry about being wrong, because we ask the crowd, and so it's like what the crowd agrees upon in the end, the wrong answer. And even trolls who come on and just say the wrong answer every time are really useful, because they're always wrong. So you just flip their answer, <laughs> and then you've got the right answer, and <laughs> it's totally fine. Because you can always tell when they're against the crowd. And it's a really, really nice project. Like I said, it's still going. So hopefully you want to get involved. But what it allows you to do is then do real science. So there's 60 science publications now that use the classifications from over 300,000 people worldwide to classify them in the sky. It's pretty cool. And you can find really rare things, and you can you know, do this like blue sky research and find the things you would never expect them to find. And I thought I would talk about that. But I want to talk to you today is about what I do with the data afterwards. What I do with, if you went online and clicked on classified these things, what I do with that data afterwards. Because one of the things it gives you is like a database, right? Databases can be very boring. I know, but this is a database of space. This is a galaxy database, which is pretty cool. And what it allows you to do is like sort your galaxies from the most blobbish to the most spiral. See, what I'm showing there is the, the probability that that is a disk or a spiral, PB. So basically, like, you can think of it as like a percentage. So it's 100% of people over here said that this was a spiral galaxy, whereas like 67% said this one. So it's really useful.
useful information to know. And so what this safe space allows you to do is search for the things that you're really interested in. So for example, if you were really interested in finding three-armed spirals that had a ring around them that were merging with other galaxies, I don't know, you might be, right? Where would you look in the sky? You wouldn't know where to start, you reckon, right? And so what you could do is go to safe space and ask it to give you those questions. So it's really, really useful because it helps you find the rarest things. And the rare things are what I'm interested in. Because usually in life, it's not the normal stuff that you learn a lot from. The normal stuff doesn't really tell you a lot. But the rare stuff can really teach you about what's going on. So for example, here's two galaxies. I hope you can notice the difference between the two. They're both spirals, yes. But the one on the right here has just got one of those, like, blobs in the center. Yeah? Whereas this one doesn't. This one's kind of like a fried egg. Yeah? It's got the whites and then the yolk. This one, no yolk. An egg white omelet, you know. The egg white omelets of galaxies are incredibly rare. You don't find a lot of those things. My question is, why? Why don't you find a lot of those things, first of all? And what can they tell us about physics? So one thing I didn't say at the beginning of the talk is what's at the center of every galaxy? Anyone know? Anyone shout out what's at the center? Yeah, a supermassive black hole. I heard that in the audience somewhere. It's a supermassive black hole. So we're talking like a billion times the mass of the sun. Think about how big the sun is and times it by a billion. That's how big the black hole is, but put it sort of inside the size of the solar system. Really small in comparison to the entire galaxy. So in this one, you've got this big blob of stars and a black hole in the center. In this one, you've got a black hole in the center and no big blob of stars. Now, the way we think these big blobs are formed, like I said in the beginning, is these mergers of two galaxies that come together and destroy that spiral nature of the structure of the galaxy. So if you want to make a really big blob of a galaxy, you have lots and lots of mergers that throw everything into the center. But if you're merging galaxies that both have supermassive black holes in the middle, then you're going to merge the supermassive black holes, too. So if you grow this thing in the middle, you grow the black hole. So what's happened here? You haven't grown the thing in the middle, so what's happened to the black hole? How big is it? Is it as big as this thing? Or is it a lot smaller? And by asking that question, you can get at how do black holes grow. It's kind of a cool question to ask, how do black holes grow? And that was essentially what I wanted to know as part of my PhD research. So have a nice little video of a merger of two galaxies if you're not quite convinced that these things happen. We actually think this is going to happen to the Milky Way and Andromeda Galaxy. So the Andromeda Galaxy I was talking about at the beginning, the Milky Way's closest neighbor galaxy, they're essentially going to come together under gravity in, I'd say, three or four billion years, do this really cool gravitational-like dance past each other, where they get all that spiral structure dragged away with these big, long tails of stars that stretch out this way. Eventually, they come together into this one big blob of a galaxy that you'll notice has a blue to green, not yellowish color. Because the thing that also happens in these mergers is it stops the stars from forming those big blue pops of energy. So that's also the eventual fate of our Milky Way in seven billion years or something. So, you know, don't run away screaming. It's fine. <laughs> no galactic collision insurance required. Um, here's what's going to be a lot. And we don't really know what's going to happen to the star in the middle. But we will turn into one of these big blobs. So one of these kind of galaxies. But we're really interested in what happens.
from the universe. So, well, first of all, we need to find them, which is what galaxies and universes is. We can go through our database and be like, ta-da, here's a load of these blobless disk galaxies, blobless spirals. And we'll be thinking, well, I can see a big blob in the middle of a load of these. That is the light from around the black hole. Because you might be like, what? So when you feed material into a black hole in the center of a galaxy and you shove material into the center, the black hole isn't like a hoover. It doesn't just take everything up. The material, what happens is it starts to spin around the black hole. Now, you'll know from seeing people make pizza, right? If you take something that's like a, a blob of stuff and you throw it above your head and you set it going, it flattens out into a disk, right? It flattens out into a flat piece of pizza dough. The same thing happens to material around a black hole. It flattens out into a disk and it heats up massively because it's so hot, because it's moving so fast. It starts to glow in X-rays, radio waves, gamma rays. And that's what you can see in the center of the universe, right? It's the light from the material spiraling through the black hole. It's pretty cool. That light's also really useful because it allows us to measure the mass of the black hole, find out how big it's grown and compare it to how big the black holes have grown in these ones that have yolks in the middle, right? these big blobs in the middle. So someone has to go to a telescope and measure the masses of these black holes. That someone was me. <laughs> I got to go as part of my PhD to the Canary Islands in the Palmas, where on the top of the mountain they've built a load of telescopes. If there is one argument that I can give you for becoming an astronomer, it's that they pay you to go to tropical places to use telescopes. As part of my PhD, I got to go to Hawaii for two weeks to use telescopes, and then I came down to ground level and I went to Davenport for a week. It was great. It was awesome. Literally the strongest argument I'm going to give you. Anyway, so this is me at sunset, which is the start of my night. I just had breakfast, because I just woke up. So we're on a night shift, right? You can see the clouds behind me. That's the top of the clouds. The mountain goes above the clouds, which is really good for astronomy. There is no clouds in the way. And you can see telescopes in the background opening up for the night and starting the night on station. I was on the telescope called the Isaac Newton Telescope. It's this one, so that photo I was just sort of up here. Uh, and if I could stand here for scale, I'd probably be out this big. It's a pretty big telescope. It's about two meters of telescope inside that big dome thing. And uh, this is the telescope dome. It's where the telescope lives. This is like the control room here. So this one is a fixed control room. Some telescopes, they move as they move around the sky, and the control room is part of the bit that moves. So every time you sort of type in a new thing to look at, it's like, Oop, and it lurches. But this one, you're, you're, you're stood still, which is good. And then this is like three floors worth of like lodging. So when it was built in the 70s, it was the only telescope on the mountain. They had to provide like, you know, bedrooms and kitchens and like showers and bathrooms and everything for the astronomers living on there. Now there's so many more telescopes that they've built like a central sort of like accommodation block where like the chefs cook food and stuff while you've been on things like that when you're observing. It's great. But it means that these three floors are essentially abandoned. And they were abandoned in sort of like the late 70s, early 80s. And it was basically like a little time capsule of the late 70s and 80s. And the thing is, that sounds pretty boring, right? Except for the fact that the toilets are still down there in the middle of the night. And you can't turn any lights on for fear of ruining your observations and giving out light pollution. So you have to walk through the abandoned 70s building in the complete dark to try and find the toilet. And it's almost like you can hear the cinema's worth of people behind you just screaming at you to turn on the light because you're the person at the beginning of the horror movie that's going to die. <laughs> but it's worth it because you get data. Everyone loves data, right? 
So what data were we trying to get? Uh, we were trying to measure the mass of the black hole, the segue. So how do you do that? We're going to take a little bit of a segue from physics into chemistry now. So chemistry 101, hydrogen atom. One proton, one electron going around the outside. Okay. If you take some energy and shine that energy on a hydrogen atom, say some x-rays, maybe, then that electron is going to jump up to the next energy level. Right? Electron doesn't like to be there. It's not supposed to be there. So it drops back down again. And when it drops back down, it gives out energy. And the thing is, quantum physics tells us, because chemistry is basically just quantum physics. If you go to university and study quantum physics, it's like, here's chemistry on a page. Quantum physics tells us those energy levels are always separated by the same exact amount. And the energy given off will be in the form of like light in a photon. So because the energy is always the same, the wavelength of the light given off is always the same, or the color, sometimes we refer to color. So you're always looking for that exact same wavelength of hydrogen. Everywhere in the universe you look, you see that exact same wavelength. And we can put it to a prism, a spectrum. And we can get out all of the different colors of the light from that single galaxy and find that you have that peak at that very specific color where hydrogen is. Yeah. Which is really cool. It's a really nice diagnostic tool because when what you expect it to look like when you plot wavelengths of color, this is in angstroms, which is basically like divide it by 10 and you get nanometers. This is like 669. And then you plot how much uh, energy you get at that specific wavelength. You'd expect it to look like this, right? Some sort of level of the galaxy giving out just generic light like the sun does, and then this big peak from all the hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most common element in the universe. We find it everywhere. It's what you see stars from. It's what pervades all the space between stars. So if you're going to feed your black hole with anything, it's probably hydrogen gas. So the light from that hydrogen gas should be given off in this nice big peak around the black hole. But that's not what we see. We're seeing like some actual real-life data from hydrogen firing around a black hole, because it looks like this. So the white line is the data that we record. The blue line, I think that's the cyan, is a fit to it. And then the red line is if you just take that fit and plus it to zero, you can see it's not. It's not that bright peak that we expect. It's sort of cleared out a little bit. And some of you might have clocked on to why. Because that hydrogen, as I said, it's not happily sitting there. It's spiraling around the black hole. So some of it is coming towards you, and some of it is moving away from you. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Like something you might have heard of before? Doppler shift? You know that idea about sirens racing past you and they change their shift as they come towards you and move away from you? That's all to do with the wavelength of the sound changing as the, as the object comes towards and moves away from you. The same thing can happen with light, except instead of higher pitches and lower pitches, you get slightly redder wavelengths and bluer wavelengths. You might have heard of this, this idea of redshift. So this stuff over here is the hydrogen gas that's moving away from us, and this stuff is the hydrogen gas that's moving towards us. So if you can measure how smeared out that is, you know how fast that gas is moving. And if you know how fast the gas is moving, you know how big the thing is that it's moving around. So if you can measure that, you can measure the mass of a black hole. Which is pretty cool, 
right? Like, I mean, the fact that humanity as a whole can do that blows my mind. That we, as a species, can measure masses of black holes with telescopes that we built. And never mind that, like, I did it, and they paid me to do it as well. Like, it was just the fact that we as a species could do it. It's just, I could talk about it all day. But what it allows you to do is compare for those rare, no bulge, no yolk in the middle galaxies, how big are the black hole beams, right? So this is the first, like, proper plot. And what you'll think of, like, yeah, that's a science plot, right? That's a nice scatter plot. Look, we've even drawn a line through it and everything, even though we probably shouldn't have drawn it through it because there's clearly no correlation possible, right? So the blue line there is the nice correlation you expect if you have one of those big yolks in the center of the galaxy. If you are having a merger of two galaxies and you grow that big yolk and you grow the black hole, there's the correlation you expect. All the points are the ones without yolks. And you'll see they've grown just as big as the other ones. So this scale here is what's called a log scale. So six means a million. So like a one with six zeros after it. Nine means a billion. A one with nine zeros after it. So nine and six zeros. And you can see that some of the black holes in these yolkless galaxies, the ones with no bulge that have been left alone, no merger, have got up to about over a billion times the mass of the sun just by hanging out by themselves. And that is so against what we've always thought in physics. So many years we've been like, they merge it, they grow galaxies, they grow black holes. And my PhD went, no they don't. <laughs> Which was a really fun thing to do. I enjoyed it anyway. And that wouldn't have been possible without Galaxy Zoo. Without Galaxy Zoo to be able to find the galaxies in the first place, that science wouldn't have been possible without the 300,000 members of the public that helped out with those things. So my PhD thesis was like, author, Becky Smethers, and 300,000 other people. <laughs> They're on every single publication that we make. All of it from just at-home astrophysics that allows anyone to call themselves an astrophysicist. So not just me standing here now, but yourself as well, when you get back to your dorm room. Just call yourself an astrophysicist. It's cool. And if you're thinking, well, that does sound fun, but maybe not astrophysics. Turns out a lot of people in science have this problem of big data that they don't know what to do with that's sitting on computer hard drives. And so a lot of scientists came to the Galaxy Zoo team after the launch and like, this is a great idea. Can we also do this? And so something called the Zooniverse was born. It's a website where it's a big collection of these projects that whatever your science is, you can get involved. So, for example, if you love um, ecology, for example, and you want to study the Serengeti National Park and want to know where lions and hyenas and giraffes all make their home and how they all interact with each other, this is a project that put 250 camera traps in the Serengeti. And they said, take an image every time something moves past now, they ended up with a lot of pictures of grass waving in the wind, admittedly. But the rest of the images were stuff like this, of uh, wildebeest that you have to pass by. And again, as a three-year-old, can tell the difference between like, a zebra and a lion, right? Like, this is something that anyone can do. And this was fun because it asked you to, you know, name the animal, but then it said, like, how many of them there are? How many of them are there? And then it also said, like, what are they doing? Are they moving? Are they eating? Are they interacting? Which is an interesting one, to say the least. Uh, but it also meant that, like, I did a bit of tricks on this, and I ended up, I now know the difference between a Grants and a Thompson's gazelle. There's a piece of information I never thought I'd make. It's a very specific stripe on their butt, basically, that uh, ticks them out. Who knew? Also, penguins. Who doesn't love penguins, right? 
in the Antarctica, research team put 200 camera tracks and took an image every half an hour of penguin ponds. And this is a difficult one because asking people to classify was fine, but when there's just like penguins as far as the eye can see, it got a little bit interesting. You had to tell people, okay, you've done enough now. We get it. We've watched this happen. What I like about this project was that um, the working title was Penguin Hunters, and then they designed the interface and thought we, we better call it something different than Penguin Hunters with this sort of crosshair video game shooter style uh, thing that they designed. But basically, what they're trying to do is work out how overfishing in the Antarctica can uh, is affecting penguins. And then maybe even history. World War I diaries that have been sat in archives for years that have finally been digitized and scanned in. Asking people to label uh, when a date or a place or a person's name has been mentioned. And what they've done is statistically track troop movements across World War I, across France in World War I for the first time. Which is actually pretty cool in my book. So it's this real people-powered research. Research, scientific knowledge that would not be possible if it wasn't for the power of the people. People like yourselves. So whatever science that you want to be involved with now, it's out there. You know, you just have to go and find it. Thank you. to do with time at all. Um, it's the fact that it's split into 60. Like an hour and a sec second into a minute, it's split into 60. It was a familiar unit. Because it has arc minute, you know that it has something to do with degrees. Like, you know, like arcs of a circle. That's where the name comes from. Is it there, there are a lot of names in astronomy in terms of things that are so old-fashioned <laughs> that we've inherited them into science. Like, we use the oddest units in astronomy, and it's literally because that's how it's always been done. It's easy to remember. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mergers, yeah. That is the exact question I'm trying to answer right now in the research. So now we found that they're that big, it's like, what is providing the material for it to grow that big. Um, so one is the hypothesis, hypothesis is that the spiral arm that funnel the gas towards the center of the galaxy. So gas you would need to make new stars gets taken away from the outskirts and dumped in the middle where the black hole will accrete a lot of it. Another theory is it's the, the bar that runs to the center of some galaxies can also do the same. And it's trying to pinpoint how fast that's actually happening and therefore work out well, what the simulations of the universe, when we put all our laws of physics into a computer, how fast are they saying these things are happening? And comparing them like for like, just to sort of narrow down which one of them. So I will get back to you on that in a year or two. <laughs> yeah. yeah, great question. So um, we are working on it, is the answer to that. So 15 years ago when these projects started, no, would have been the answer. Um, essentially because if you're going to train a machine to classify these images, you need a huge big training set of images. So you need a load of them where the answer is known and you can tell the machine that that's what the answer is, so it learns. The size of those training sets needs to be in the millions and it was bigger 
than the classification set we ever had at the time. So I think with Kevin's 50,000 that he did, that wouldn't have been enough to train a machine. We did what's called a Kaggle competition a few years ago. So folks have never heard of that. Kaggle is like this online sort of computer science competition that you can enter. And there's lots of different like people that post these projects that you can just have a go on. And you post your code and you say like how accurate you've been compared to like what criteria they've set, etc. The guy who won it essentially quadrupled the data set by saying, well, the classification doesn't change if I mirror all the images, but every image will be different. So that quadrupled the set. And he managed to get much more accurate that way with sort of a little bit of a, a fudge. Um, the same thing with the Serengeti um, images, their training set that they have from classifications is now like 4 million. But the machines are still struggling. Like I saw an output the other day from one of these things that was literally just um, an image of one wildebeest in the middle of a field of grass. And it was like 17 zebra in the sky. <laughs> um, we were like, nope, <laughs> it's not right. So people are trying to get better. What's really interesting is that as we go forward in astronomy and we build bigger and bigger telescopes. So the next set of survey telescopes is set to give us a billion galaxies rather than a million. Um, and even if we have a machine that's, say, 95% accurate, let's make it 99% for easy numbers, <laughs> then we have, like, a million galaxies still left to test for, right? And it's still the same amount. So we can imagine a future where you've got machines doing the easy stuff, like blob, 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 and then the humans get left with the really interesting, cool stuff that we still can't get there, which will be more fun. <laughs> I think the, there's two things. One is gravitational waves, definitely. That's really cool. We have come up with a new way of seeing the universe that we've never had before that is not light, which is awesome. The other one is, I think, do you remember the black hole image that was released last year? Like that level of detail, which is really funny for me to say because a lot of people look at that image and go, it's just a fuzzy orange donut. What are you talking about detail? But like that is so tiny on the sky. The fact that they managed to resolve that is incredible. And it was from essentially piecing together telescopes on the Earth to make the first size telescope. And the next step is to put one of those in space, for example, on the moon. And then you make a telescope that's the size of the moon's orbit. And can you imagine how small like a massive telescope like that would be able to resolve? So I think those are the, the big two areas. Also like exoplanet atmosphere and you know, finding water and what kind of that would be, that would be cool too. Maybe this one. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. There's always like the field in astrophysics that's like the, um, like the, the trendy field. So like hundreds of years ago, it was exoplanets, and now it's gravitational waves. And I think I've just always been fascinated by galaxies, like just this huge big structure that can form such incredible shapes, but the same kind of shapes that you can make if, you know, you have a cup of tea that you're like swirling around, you, know, you can make that sort of spiral shape. It's that kind of like reflection of like physics of the everyday into like this gigantic structure that just blows our mind. And there's so much to think of with galaxies that all feeds in and everything you have to consider. It's, in my mind, it's like the biggest big picture science. And I sort of got into galaxies, and then I was like, oh, there's a black hole in the middle. And so I got really drawn in by that too. And it's funny because people are like, oh, you study black holes. And I'm like, I actually don't really care about 
it's a black hole, I care about what effect it has on the galaxy and how the two of them evolve together. So it's like I get to be a little bit of both, which I really like. As for like astronomy in general, I was just one of those kids that had spaceships coming out their ears and I just, you know, at family gatherings would be like, did you know that Saturn floats and you can put on water? <laughs> like as an eight-year-old, like I was that kid, right? So I just always loved space. Can anybody not know that Saturn floats and put it on water? Am I just blowing <laughs> anyone's mind? Yeah, um, so for numbers in terms of, I studied the 300,000 of the Galaxy Z, it's 1.4 million to the universe as a whole. It's pretty cool. We actually used to list it in terms of like the sizes of countries' armies, and we just slowly crossed everybody off. Like we went, over, we looked at the USA, we looked at Russia, we were like, ha ha, we have more people than Russians have in their army. Anyway, um, it is very important to reduce the data. So like take the raw data and put it in a usable form. And in that step, that's when you have to really be careful that you're considering whether people might have intentionally sabotaged. So something about the trolls before that might come on and, and say the wrong thing every time, you can flip that around. With someone, say, if it's like a four-year-old that doesn't necessarily know what they're doing and they're clicking randomly, that might be a bit more difficult. But that's why we ask like 10, 20 people to look at each image, because then you have the agreement of the crowd. So even if one person is wrong, which we don't like to say wrong because it is subjective, it's, it's what you see. There are some galaxies you can't tell, and it might be because they're halfway through turning from the spiral into a blob, and so that's like tough tech. Um, and so it is really useful information to have that sort of probability of an image, and that's how we like to consider it, is like the probability that this isn't over spiral is just tough tech from listening to people talk about it. And so that's how we've imported it to get around the idea. There's also lots of like cool things you can do with like trackers who follow computations in behind the scenes in the algorithms to sort of save your statistics and stuff. It's, it's really awesome. But like, if you were just going to take it and sort of change it yourself in a very basic way, you can still get around that. It's too cumbersome.